on this Sunday evening. Uh, with me tonight, we have some usual faces and another special guest. Uh, so, starting off with John Joe Cosgrove. Hello, everybody. Peter Ray Allison. Good evening. And our special guest tonight, Walter Wright, lookalike, <laughs> and prompt maker, Michael Corey. Welcome, sir. Uh, thank you. I'm about to log off now. I'm done with it. <laughs> okay, so so Mike, for everybody who who's being you know who is not on TikTok and has been living under a rock for the last sort of couple of weeks, who are you? What do you do? Uh, well, my name is Michael Corey, as you said, and uh, I am the host of the Prop History, or excuse me, at Props to History on TikTok. Um, in the last thirty days, I went from being just another schmuck on TikTok to having 114,000 followers now. <laughs> and rising. Uh, and all I do is tell stories about props and what they were made from and different things about uh, film background. And that's it. And I didn't realize that it was going to be that popular. So, well, um, I, what, what, what was the story? Because obviously you, you haven't been on for that long because when I first started following you, um, you had what 10,000 followers or something something ridiculous yeah, I think like that, that i think that's the first time you sent me a message was when i had 10,000 followers which is like what two weeks ago yeah and then and, <laughs> Ten and times it, that it, it's mind-boggling to me because i i woke up one morning and i was i had gone from 3,000 followers to 10,000 followers overnight and then within the span of a few days i was at 50,000 followers and then six days after that i was at 100,000 and i'm gaining four to 5,000 followers a day. And it's just, it keeps steamrolling. And, and I don't, I don't know when it's going to stop, if it's going to stop. So I just keep making the same content, but it was extremely rapid and very unexpected. So I, I have to say so. that out of all the TikToks, like mine generally consists of, um, my TikToks and it consists of dog stuff um, or nerdy stuff. And when mm -hmm. yours came up, I was just like, oh my God, this is awesome. Because it's nerdy stuff and you're learning as well. And it's just like, I'm obsessed with it now because you're quite you're quite regular with it as well. And it's like super interesting facts. And I'm like, I didn't know that. That's fucking amazing. And, and it's like really good stuff. And that was that was the goal too, was when I, when I first started doing it, the very first TikTok I did was actually about the Book of the Dead from The Mummy. And it's it, for a long time it was actually my most popular video for forever uh, when i say forever for like a week and then <laughs> and then it got overtaken by something else and i have to i have to remember all of this is condensed down into the last literally the last 30 days that this has happened and all i did was all i wanted to do was tell this like a, a few facts about the prop and then its connection to history and that was it which is actually where the name comes from props to history and it it, it blew up and I was completely shocked by this. And I was like, well, I have, I don't know how many hundreds of props in my collection. I could keep doing this. But then it's, it's now it's turned into, I show off props in my collection and tell the story about them. And also answering people's questions about where props are, what happened to them, how things were done in film. I started doing a short series on the Titanic. And that's blown up beyond what I thought it would. And it's, it, it's, it's surprising how much people want this information. Because we've all grown up watching these movies, and all we we know it's the movie we watched it, we've enjoyed it. But then when you start to have be able to have a conversation about the things you saw in that movie, people's curiosity explodes, and they want to know where this where this go? Did this get destroyed? Does it still exist? Who owns it? That kind of stuff. Then it's sorry, I didn't I didn't mute my phone. <laughs> um, and it's just it it it's it's mind boggling to me 
that no one else does this with how popular it, it has become. And, well, when you, exactly when you say props, do you mean like objects that have, that have been in films? Um, it's uh, some of the stuff that I have is what's called screen used uh, yeah. things that have been in film or it's production made. Uh, but most of the props that I have are replicas because I can't afford the real ones. Yeah. Uh, real props are viciously expensive. And I got into this um, from the perspective of a model maker. I just wanted to make replicas of things I saw on screen. And then the more you collect, if you get into collecting anything, I'm sure all of you know this, you, you start to almost become a hoarder of things. And then I became obsessed with making props from their original parts which is extremely hard when you go to things like Alien 1979, where some of the parts are still unknown for that. And it just, the whole thing snowballed into this. So where Pizza I've converted, converted almost half of my house to just building props. <laughs> well, there's two questions, two things from this. Uh, one, Pete's a massive Aliens fan, as you can probably see from the little picture from behind him. And yep. two, does, does your missus not mind that you've taken over the house with all your stuff? Oh, well, my missus is actually also a prop maker. Oh, and right. She is also a cosplayer. So it it's a, a very much a mutual thing. One Symbiotic. side of the shop is hers and one side of the shop is mine kind of thing. My my crap tends to be bigger, so it takes up more space. But uh, it, it we both do it. She's not as into it as I am. She's not as obsessive, I guess is the right way to say it. <laughs> but she does enjoy it. She loves the cosplaying aspect more than anything else. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Uh, does she have a, a cosplay persona, a page, name, anything? Uh, it's a little cough shop, actually, on uh, TikTok. And she just she just joined TikTok, basically, to follow what I do, essentially. But, <laughs> uh, but it's also a little cough shop uh, on Instagram as well. And she has a, a very nearly screen-accurate Princess Leia, uh, Endor Princess Leia, um, that's actually the helmet is made from the, uh, the same parts as the originals, the old World War II flight helmet and... Uh, some other screen accurate parts and uh, we tried to make it as screen accurate as possible still working on it and then they um the other one that she actually just completed is a uh, oh goodness i can't remember what they're called right now weeping angel from doctor Who. all right yeah 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 and, i saw that i saw her, that video actually yeah yeah her her wings are i think each wing section is 260 individually cut feathers that are layered to look just just right and uh her whole wow. she, she hand sewed every part of it and then completely inundated it with glue and paint to make it look like stone <laughs> so that when she moves uh it's it it looks like just stone moving around so she did a beautiful job at it i'm quite proud of her for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you you were saying about um some of the things obviously uh, what you've made in terms of replicas but you've also got some screen used items i do well, what what was the first screen-used item that you So uh, the first screen-used prop I ever bought was... Did, did you ever see HBO's The Pacific? Yes, I loved it. Yes. Loved okay, it. So, so the character John Bazalone... Yeah, yeah. Um, ...who was a real person, Manila John Bazalone, he was called in Marine Corps. Um, there's a scene where he's carrying uh, what's called a rising submachine gun. It's just a wooden stocked submachine gun. They, they did not get used in uh, in service in the, uh, World War II for very long. They were they were kind of outmoded, but they only he's the only character seen carrying one, and he's carrying what's called a stunt prop. It's a rubber uh, casting of one of those guns, and I ended up buying that. I ended up winning that at an auction. So it's actually a screen match, screen used stunt prop from the Pacific, 
And oh, wow. uh, that, that was the very first, I'll be doing a video on it before long to sh like mm -hmm. demonstrate how prop guns, like how stunt guns look and what they're made of. Um, but I had to clear it first with TikTok because it is, oh, gun. It, it is very hard to look at it and not think it's a real firearm. So, <laughs> um, and I have to be careful with that because, uh, TikTok has fairly strict regulations on that stuff. So I don't want my channel to get banned because, oh man, so many times, <laughs> like we, we did, um, we, we're sort of friendly with uh, TikTok Jesus and mm -hmm. um, he's been taken down numerous times. And, uh, oh yeah, he was there's so many people that hate him. I know, <laughs> it's like... And I don't know why. Yeah, it's, well, I kind of know why, but it's yeah, just like, know you know... Why. Yeah, it, I know why. It, but... You know, but it's just... And him got taken down on Christmas Eve when I was like watching yeah. him, and he's just like, "My channel's just been taken down." I was like, "Oh, dude, I mean, that's great." Take your moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I would be, I'd be mortified. You know, it's just like right. you know, I know mine are all dog videos and stuff. But the thing is, I'm starting to get because I think you're safe. I think you're safe because you're just basically telling people facts about things that they can't really have opinions on. You're literally going, "This is how it is." I've done research history. Um, mm -hmm. whereas mine's literally, I thought I was safe until I started, right. like, I had a stupid video of me pulling my dog and everybody's like, you're not training that dog properly. You're not doing this properly. Right. <laughs> I get... Everybody all of a sudden becomes dog experts on, on the internet. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's just my, like... my, my wife actually comes from a family that have bred and raised and shown dogs, uh, since she was a little kid and they raised Akitas, oh. uh, uh, American Akitas, uh, when she was little. And she knows all about large dogs, uh, uh, that side. And she watched some of your videos and kind of read into that little controversy. And, and she's like, he's doing nothing wrong. <laughs> and then of course she went on about how adorable your dog is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. Like, cause like I, I, I thought I was, I was pretty safe. On TikTok, I was mm -hmm. like, I'm just sort of, I'm just tooting videos of, 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 my, of my stupid dog doing stupid things. And the one mm -hmm. where he's like being pulled, it's not even serious because... And I've had to prove this, which annoyed me because I had to prove it. But it's like, he, he goes when I tell him to go most of the time, 95% of the time, he sort of does right. what he's, he's told to do, basically. He knows who's the boss, but he is stubborn. And I thought I'd show you one, how strong he is and two, how stubborn he can be if he wants to be. And uh, yeah. I thought it's hilarious. The guy, it's really hilarious. And then I'm just, I just get people going, you don't know how to train a dog and you're this is this is dog abuse and you should do this and you should use a choke collar and you should do all this stuff and i'm just like yeah whoa <laughs> what where the hell is this well, coming I get, from i get my fair share of righteous indignation as really? well because, really really oh yeah well there's there and you know full well there's there will always be someone on the internet that wants to be mad they want to find a reason to be angry about something and um, usually with, with me, it's if I mispronounce something, All right. uh, they will attack me for mispronouncing something like cities. Uh, I try my best to, to pronounce cities in other countries correctly. Uh, but sometimes I mess it up and that's what I tend to get attacked for is mispronunciations or something like it. But there's always somebody that just won't let it go. <laughs> like no matter what, they, like, this is the hill they're going to die on. And okay, bud. Well, the thing mean, is, engage them. I don't want to block you, but it's really easy to do. But the thing is, man, I and I was thinking about this, and I I, I did another video. And it's just like if you engage them, they have to watch your video and they're commenting, mm -hmm. and you're getting paid money. You go, hey, it's two p a view, a two yeah. p for a thousand oh, yeah. views or whatever it is, um, or two cents. And so basically, the more you engage them, the more they're working for you. So I just I just let them go. I'm just go, yeah, yeah. fine. <laughs> well, like, I, every video that I post, and you brought it up at the beginning of this. 
uh, everyone, there's always someone or probably half a dozen someones that tell me how much I look like Walter White. And I have to just ignore it because <laughs> otherwise it's like that will be the whole conversation will be that I look like Walter White. <laughs> so my only choice is just to let it go and move on. Man, I or get I look like Tom Hanks or Adam Savage and Jamie Heine. <laughs> <laughs> I get, what, how old is he? Is he is he is he a Newfoundland? He's a fluffy Rottweiler. Um, what else do I get? I bet he shits a lot. It's the same questions over and over and over and yep. over again. Sounds sounds vaguely familiar. Joe, <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second to realise you're talking about the dog. I thought you meant yourself for a second. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what the the really ups- <laughs> the really upsetting thing is that. We like locked. We started this in lockdown last year, which is nearly a year. So we we started yeah. in March of last year. So it's nearly a full year since we've been in this shit. And um, what my girlfriend, who's sort of like she's not a nerd in any way, shape, or form. She's a fashionista. You know, she's she does an Instagram. You know, she does proper fashion and stuff. And she makes me take photographs mm-hmm. of her. And uh, she's like, "Oh, I'll do, I'm going to start a TikTok because you know that's a new thing." And I was like. I can start a TikTok, you know, I'll start one. So I started doing stupid things and getting no traction whatsoever. And then as soon mm-hmm. as I put in a stupid video of my dog literally doing yeah. nothing, it was just like, boom, 500,000 follow, 500,000 sort of kind of views. I was like, oh, so this is where this is going to go. <laughs> I'm actually uh, quite surprised because I see people like, like your channel. I look at the views that you get on your videos and I have almost no views on any of my videos. And it just seems like people just follow me and that's it and don't watch my videos at all <laughs> because I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. I won't claim to understand how TikTok works because I don't, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's, it's, it's a weird little place. It's Much the, like Twitter is a weird little place. It but. is. But the thing is you get envy because I'm like, you got so many followers and stuff. And it's just like, I got like more followers. I think it's like, like we went from a massive chunk of, I say wait, well, yeah, Boz went. It's not even my TikTok anywhere. It's Boz's TikTok. Boz's TikTok right. went from like, you know, and the most we got, we got 30,000 and that took nearly nine months to get 30,000 followers. And then one of his videos where he comes in from the snow exploded and got, it's on 12 million views at the minute and 2 million likes and all kinds of crazy. It just sort of kind of went fucking mental. Oh, I'll tell you what, Boz is going to be getting an upgrade on his food, don't he? Yeah. Yeah. TikTok don't pay that much. TikTok don't well, pay I, that I think also my my consistency, or I guess you could call it that, the rate at which I make videos probably hurts me a little bit too. No, don't stop it, man. It's awesome. I, well, because I put out 20 videos in a single day and that... I, I just started oh. dumping. Yeah, yeah. I put out 20, 20 videos in a single day once. I usually average between seven and ten a day, and because a lot of this stuff is pulled from memory, so it's easy for me to make it on the fly. Uh, like the, I try to do it once a day where I show off an actual physical prop, but the rest of the time it's just me telling stories, and I, I think that that doesn't help because I just I think the analytics kind of shut me down. They're like, we've had enough of you go to bed i don't think it's that i think it's because your content is it's it's to do with short things like videos that sort of kind of go bit are like 15 seconds long 20 seconds it's it's basically it's to do with how long somebody will watch it for and stuff so people might watch your you might have a lot of people watching your videos but they're not watching it for a long time uh, for the full the full amount and as soon as that sort of that's where it sort of kind of kicks you in the balls so i find like if i've got something that's a minute long it doesn't do as well as something that's sort of 15 20 seconds long and it's it's, it's shareable. It's all shares. <laughs> it's all about shares and stuff like that, isn't it? So yeah. how many comments and how many shares and stuff you get, and it's just like thing is, though, man. It's just like, but you've been on it for a month. A month. 
you know, and you're at 110,000 yeah, and, and counting. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, I'm probably people, doing all right. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, it's mad. You know, I, I you know, I, I'd be, I'd be absolutely insanely jealous if it wasn't for the fact that the content's absolutely amazing. Like, I love it. You know, I, there is well, nothing, I, honestly, nothing on TikTok that I enjoy more than watching your videos. And it's just like, I don't tend to use my follow, um, my follower tab much. It's usually the for you page, but I do just so I can see how many new ones you've put on there and stuff. And it's just, right. it's a joy. It's yeah. usually, well, I, I put five on uh, this morning before I was done with work. <laughs> <laughs> and then after this podcast, it's going to be another 10. Oh, uh, no, he's frozen out. I have, oh, I, no. have oh, I actually have a whole uh, four-part series uh, because of a young lady asked how to get into prop making. And then it was, it's just a four-part series of me telling how i got into it because it is my my uh, journey if you will into making props professionally which i only do semi-professionally now um is probably as atypical as it gets but then at the same time every other story i've heard of people that got into props they're all atypical so i don't know that there is one road but i was just trying to give this young lady some advice on what to do because i think she's only she's only like 18 and she wants to get into it so that's a good segue, actually, because yeah. that would be an interesting sort of uh, view. Story about yeah, story. Yeah. So from from the start, from 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 the the foam horse to the uh, to well, the, it from the Adam goes much further, it much, goes much further back than that, sir. It doesn't. Right, okay. um, oh, it does. Yeah. So uh, I grew up on military bases because my dad was uh, Air Force, so we traveled all over the country. Uh, he would go overseas and whatnot, and he was a model maker from long before I was born. And he passed that hobby on to me as a model maker. And when he, he spent a lot of time at RAF Alconbury. He's oh, back. I'm back. He's can you back. hear me? He can. Good? Well, I mean, let me yeah, stick, stick you back on. I don't to... know what happened there. Yeah. <laughs> you were mid story. And it's just like, nah, we're not going to Okay. Go. Well, uh, are, are we good? Yes. <laughs> yep. All right. I'll, I'll just start from the top. Uh, dad, England, Air Force brought back Jerry Anderson stuff. I was a model maker. He was a model maker long before that. Um, when VHS was first a thing, and this is how old I am, uh, when VHS was first a thing, my dad managed to land his hands on like the early VHS of like the Jerry Anderson shows. And some of them were being shown on Nickelodeon and stuff. And I fell in love with them. I fell in love with Space 1999 and Captain Scarlet. And, and even though like the Thunderbirds like creeped me out like none <laughs> other, I absolutely loved the models. That were okay. in. And that was what drew me to it was the models. I didn't care much for the story, even though Captain Scarlet was really awesome. Um, I love the models. And the same with Doctor Who. Like uh, Tom Baker was the first Doctor I ever watched, and his scarf is hanging up over there in the corner. But I fell in love with that stuff. And then I started seeing like 2001 A Space Odyssey and uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Alien, all that in that era. And it was the models that I'd focus on. And I wanted to duplicate them. And one day there was a TV show on PBS, which is the public access here. And it was about how the models for um, Close Encounters of the Third Kaiden were made. And the moment that I heard they were made from random model parts glued onto stuff, I literally looked over at my closet in my bedroom, which was full of model kits. And I tore them all apart to make a spaceship, which infuriated <laughs> my dad to no end. But I was hooked on the idea of kit bashing and scratch building at that point. And I started trying to duplicate what I saw on screen or duplicate things that did not exist as a model kit. 
and I ended up building a uh, one. It's one fifty fourth scale. It's about five and a half feet long. Uh, cutaway model of the USS Monitor, uh, the world's first ironclad ship. The, well, the second one that was used by the, the United States during the Civil War. Uh, famous for fighting the CSS Virginia at the battle. Oh, were these the two uh, ironclads? Amp the two ironclads? Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. first two ironclads. Yeah, 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 this was the one with the turret. Uh, designed by John Erickson, yeah. and I still remember a lot. I, I, I like. I ordered copies of the blueprints from the Library of Congress. Wow. I, I went all out to try to make this, and this is in the days of early internet, where a lot of this stuff really wasn't available online. And the model was purchased and is actually owned by the Mariners Museum in Newport News, Virginia. It was the first model I ever sold, where they have the actual turret from the monitor that they raised uh, from off of uh, Cape Hatteras in South Carolina. But that's. And I got into competition model making where I would compete against other model makers. I did really well at it. And it just it's a hobby that stayed with me ever since. And I still love scratch building. And I, I, I did some other model work. And then I had to go do stuff for a living. And it kind of fell by the wayside. And about three years ago, four years ago, I went to Gen Con, which is a big yeah. gaming convention here yeah. in actually in Indianapolis. And I, I was introduced to cosplay for the first time. And I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. So I started making props for cosplay because I had the skill sets transfer super easily from model making into cosplay. There's some humps you have to get over. But I started doing that. And then a good friend of mine, uh, her name is Bree. They, uh, her and her husband, they raise Clydesdales. And they train and they show Clydesdales. And one of her horses was about to have her last show before she retired. And she'd been showing this horse for 14 years, I think. And she said, can you make a costume for my horse? She's a huge Star Wars fan. Brie, not the horse. The horse couldn't care less about Star Wars. But she she said, can you make an AT-AT costume for my horse? And I said, how hard could it be? I'm pretty sure there was booze involved in this conversation. <laughs> and it, it took me about a year to build, but I ended up building a, um, a uh, an AT-AT costume with full lights and sound. Uh, for a 2,000 pound, 18 and a half hand high horse. This is where you put your hand up and the picture comes up on your hand, by the way. So you... <laughs> yeah. yeah that's... If this was TikTok, yeah. you'd be doing this with your hand. Yeah, I'd be doing it on TikTok. I've shown it on TikTok a couple of times. Okay. Uh, um, I've kept horses for many years. Yeah. How on earth did you keep the horse so calm and sedate when you put touching a low and an attack to it? Right. Well, it's a fair question, uh, but. Uh, Clydesdales are notoriously bomb-proof, is the term that, that Bree yeah. uses. Uh, extremely calm, could not be concerned with anything going on around her. And as we were, as I was building it, it was a constant series of, of fittings and refittings to make sure that it wasn't anything that could harm her in any way, <laughs> that it didn't stress her out in any way. And that's why it ultimately it took so long to build. Because we, we decided early on, if Mona's going to be upset by this thing, we abandon the project, done. We say we tried it and move on, uh, but it ended up ended up working, and I posted it online when it was done, and this was a two months before the horse show that she was going to up in Wisconsin, and which was the World Clydesdale Show. So it was all Clydesdales, these massive horses, and because it was October, they have the costume class, which is where this whole thing started, and apparently the horse world like went nuts over it. They thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever seen. 
Um, it ended up on CNET. Uh, it ended up in the New York Post. There were stories written about it in like seven different languages. Apparently, it ended up as a billboard in Japan selling something. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> I, I never watermarked the picture because I didn't think anyone would care. And so a lot of people have used it to make money and I've made none off of it, but uh, that's just the way things go. You live and you learn. But, uh, apparently before that, the horse world did not take costume classes seriously. And then when we showed up, there were like, I think 37 entries where there had initially only been five. And it was all these absolutely gorgeous costumes made uh, for their horses and like, um, a uh, nightmare before Christmas one that was absolutely beautiful and just basically told the whole story of the movie with a horse and a wagon. And I was impressed. And I'm, I, I take some measure of pride that that like that, that lit people's uh, fascination and imagination to build that stuff. So that's my takeaway from it to be as positive as possible. <laughs> I, um... and then after that, that sort of lit a interest in doing more cosplay. And I, I was like, I want to make a costume. I want to go to a con and do cosplay for the first time in my life. And I ended up making a costume of the Witch King of Angmar from Lord of the Rings. And Weta saw it. And of course, they're the ones that made the original costume. And they shared it. They posted it on their website. And then about a month later, after some paperwork, I ended up becoming a contractor for Weta. Oh, nice. So, wow. So I am on the contractor list for the United States for Weta. Not that I've ever been put to work because they don't really do film projects here. But um, but they loved it. And every con I went to, it was everybody loved it. And I ended up actually meeting Lawrence McCory, the actor who played the Witch King. And um, once he signed it, it was no longer war wearable. So <laughs> it's, that's, that's it in my prop You didn't happen to go display. to San Diego when, in 2016, did you? I did not. I've never actually been to San Diego Comic-Con. I, uh, I live on the East Coast. I live closer to the East Coast. So I was actually supposed to go to Dragon Con in Atlanta this year oh, or this past year. But of course, COVID brought all yeah. that to an end. So no cons. Probably won't see a con until 2022 yeah. legitimately because I don't trust people to do things the right way yet. So um, I've been vaccinated because I work in healthcare as a regular job, but um, still a lot of people haven't. And until that happens, I'm not going to go into a big crowds of people. Yeah. Probably but the that <laughs> the witch King of Angmar spiraled into now I make, I make uh, extremely accurate replicas of props and I I'm sitting in my shop right now. And I, I, it's just now it's become an obsession. Uh, and all I want to do is make hyper accurate replicas of props. And then TikTok occurred. So who knows where it's going to go from here? But how how do you go about making so such accurate props? Well, part of it is well, ninety percent of it's research. Um, knowing what something is made from is the best start. So you remember Alien nineteen seventy nine? Yeah, Just the portable tracker. The portable tracker. Yeah, it works on it works on uh, micro changes in air density. That line. So this is one that I've been restoring for a friend of mine. Restoring? Yeah. Oh, wow. oh, man, I know. I thought you'd love that, Pete, when I saw it in one of his videos. I was like, Pete's going to buzz off that. Oh, yeah, so that is I still amazing. Have, I still have quite a few parts to attach to it, and it needs He's had it for a long time. He built it um, from parts that he actually got from Bob Burns, well, from molds that were obtained from Bob Burns. And if you don't know who Bob Burns is, 
in the prop collecting community, he's an absolute legend. He owned um, the filming model for the Nostromo that was 11 feet long. Um, it sat in his driveway for 20 years because he didn't know what to do with it. Uh, but he also owns the original Time Machine from 1960. Um, he wow. found it in a thrift store for a thousand dollars. Yeah, he's, he's an, he for the longest time it was thought that there was only one spacesuit left from Alien, and that it had hung in the Hard Rock Cafe um, for forever in Las Vegas, I believe. And a friend of mine restored it, and he actually makes those suits. He made the suit for Adam Savage and a bunch of other people. And they went. He met Bob Burns, and he was talking to Bob Burns in his house about how I restored the last suit. And he said, you didn't restore the last suit. And he just opened his garage or his closet door and pulled out uh, a another suit used in the movie. That he just <laughs> happened to have up in the back of a closet. Like this guy has an insane amount of props and they were just given to him. Like no one cared about props at one time. Yeah. Back in the late seventies and early eighties, movie props were just a thing you made and discarded much yeah. like with star Wars. When, when the first star Wars film was made, they put all the props in a storage garage and then stopped paying on it before the movie was released because they didn't want to pay for it anymore. So it all went in the trash. Oh, except that makes me feel pieces, sick. Including the original Death Star. <laughs> and the Death Star changed hands several times before it actually ended up being found used as, being used as a trash can in a honky-tonk in Missouri. Uh, <laughs> I saw that and video and I was so... It's now fully restored and in a collector's uh, possession, but being used as a trash can in a honky-tonk in Missouri is what saved it. Because otherwise it would have been thrown in the garbage. That's but that's what sense. happened with props. But like, like I'll go back to this thing, the tracker. This is actually a bunch of found parts. This is a cover for a drain. Yep. And on this side is an ice cube tray. <laughs> yeah. That they just glued to the side. Now the whole thing, the now the tube on the end, this here, is believed to be the cover for a tube for an oscilloscope, but it's never been fully identified what it's from. Right. But the whole prop, the basis of it, bear with me a moment, is a Panasonic portable TV. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's what they start life as. And I, I'm the only one in the world that owns all the molds to make these. And I've built seven of them so far. And I have another five TVs now to make more of these. And once I'm done with those, I'm done. I'll never make more. I'll never make more. <laughs> I hate making things over and over. But people want these because there's there's no one else making them. And I'll probably at some point sell the molds. But uh, but that's that's how it starts is research and then finding things and digging stuff up. It's, do you remember Firefly? Yeah. Oh. Do you know what? This is a this is a bit of my shame. I've never seen Firefly before. That's don't okay. take my don't Nobody... take my geek cards away from me, but I've never seen it. We need to talk, Matt. <laughs> oh no, Mike, you've gone again. Oh, he's back. Oh, no. He's back. He's back. I'm back. You're back. Is it good? You're you're good. He's got a froze out there. This is, is nerve-wracking. <laughs> but uh the the Lassiter from Firefly. That's in a couple episodes, they try to steal it, right? They do steal it and they try to sell it. But this is a replica of the Lassiter that I've been working yeah. on. Now, I, I'll, I'd get, I'd say I'd, this: what my grandfather used to say, I'll give you a buffalo nickel if you can identify what it was made from. But this and this are two found parts. The rest of it's custom. And the two parts that it's actually made from are a Galactron gun from the 1960s. Wow. 
and a ready light flashlight. <laughs> That's Jesus. what the top oh, yeah. was actually made from. So the top of it, this part right here is a flashlight. All of this is a flashlight. They gutted it and then covered it up with some sheet styrene, added some what are called uh, greeblies on the end. And then this is the handle of the Galactron gun. Yeah. And that's how these things were made. And and hunting down these original parts is extremely hard sometimes. Um, I searched for the better part of a year just to find that flashlight. And it's that's that's the obsession is if, if you're willing to hunt these parts down, and, and I clearly am, uh, you can make these props. And 3D printing and 3D modeling is a completely viable way to do this too. But I have this thing about finding original parts, and yeah. and I keep doing it. Do so. you have a pile of shame? Now, obviously, I um, I a I'm pile a pile of shame. A pile of shame. So basically, I have uh, I'm a Warhammer 40k nerd, and and so oh, I have no. I have literally a Tupperware like huge containers full of of sprues uh, of stuff mm -hmm. that I've wanted no, to. I feel you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not made yet. I feel you. Yeah, but, no. Um, I do. Uh, well, I don't consider it shame. I consider it future projects. I have a whole shelf over there, which means nothing to you because you're not in the shop, but it's covered in bins that are filled with parts. And it's parts of machines I've taken apart, things I've used to make other props. I keep everything because I might need it for something else or for different scratch build. But you play 40K, when did you start playing 40K? Uh, Rogue Trader, 1980s. I, I, I was there from day one, pretty much. 1988. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was there. My the first I remember as well. My dad came back uh, one day, um, and like he was he was a master. Like he used to make sort of like tanks and and Spitfires and model planes and stuff. Mm -hmm. So like your father, you know, he's really into model making. Are you me? Yeah, well, I wear glasses, you know, and uh, right. well, it's like same sort of thing. So like my, you know, my my uncle was in the Air forces as well. So uh, we you know all into um, the modeling and stuff, and uh, he came home one day, um, and like. I think he'd be trying to, he got me some um, sort of like air fix kits and stuff. So we'd, we'd made sort of like Spitfires and uh, and, and he sort of and made this sort of kind of uh, Panzer three, I think. And he, then he came back one day and he had a sprue of Space Marines, a an old Citadel um, pack of paints, which I still have some of the old paints from like the 80s flying around still. Wow. And, a, and a book. And it was it was Rogue Trader, and he said, "Oh, this has just come out. I thought you might like it." And I was just like, "Wow!" And I did, I loved it. I did, a, I did a project on it in school that I was so into, and bar little sort of space in the middle where I tried to be cool and downgrade the fact that I was a massive nerd. Um, I've pretty much been a Warhammer geek for all my life. So, <laughs> yeah, my my first my first forty k model as it was in nineteen it was nineteen eighty eight. And it was the two pack of Land Raiders when you oh, could get two Land Raiders. Yes. In a box. Oh yeah. And and they were dreadful models, of course, at the time. But I didn't care because it was two tanks that I could build. And then I think it was maybe a month later, my brother found the rule book and he said, "It's a game." <laughs> and and we started reading it and we're like, "What do these rules even mean?" Yeah. We couldn't understand. You, know, you played Rogue Trader, you know, half of it was super confusing. Yeah. So yes, uh, yeah. Yeah. I played 40k all the way up. I think to seventh edition was the last time I played. Oh man, it's seventh and, edition. And, and... Uh, it, it, to be honest, I, at seventh edition I had it had it sort of charm, but it was a bit too bloated. They've now knocked it down. Mm -hmm. So eighth edition and now ninth edition, um, they've just streamlined a shitload of it and stuff. 
And I've still and, yeah. got the original Road Trade up on my shelf. Yeah, I've, I've still I got still mine. have mine. Yeah, I've still got yeah. mine too. I still have mine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's the thing I is... still have all my original Necromunda books too. Oh, no way! Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, like, I... Um, I, I've got a massive thing. Like, I've got most of the rule books, but I now started getting... When sort of sixth edition came out, they brought out this, like, special edition rule book uh, that looked like a reliquary. A relic... I can't even say the name. A reliquary. Yeah. And uh, it had, like, you, you got a bag and you got a mug and you got all this crazy shit inside it and stuff. And I went, they're doing special editions now. And so literally, so on sixth edition, seventh edition, the apocalypse versions of both of those, eighth edition and ninth editions... I have these special editions now <laughs> that to sit there on a shelf. They're not even open. They're just like, they're there. They're special editions. Just they don't there. get touched. Yeah. You know? And then I buy the, the, the original version. No, the, the one you can use just so, you know, I can have it. And yeah, okay. and it's, yeah, it's, it's just gone. No, I, I, re- I remember that obsession. That actually, that was actually one of the big things that derailed um, scratch building and, and, the kit bashing I did with sci-fi models was actually 40k because I got really heavily into 40k for probably six or seven years, and that was that was all I did. I made some beautiful models during that time, but they were all 40k related. Do you, so, what's your painting like? What's that? What's your painting like? What's your painting skills like? My painting skills are nothing compared to my brother's. Actually, um, my brother is a beautiful miniature painter and sculptor, but. Um, I, I'm a tabletop worthy. Yeah, yeah. That's about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for that type of painting, when it comes to props, it's a different story because it's a different style of painting entirely. Mm. So I'm trying to make it look realistic in one to one scale versus trying to make things look realistic in, you know, one in 28 millimeter scale. So, yeah. See, I have, I get a bit sort of, um, as much as I like, I love model making and stuff, but I get mm-hmm. sort of overwhelmed by it. And, in that I'll even stuff that you know uh is it's got instructions I don't use instructions I just sort of kind of figure out how it <laughs> sort of fits together I just do this <laughs> that is it. It. Yeah. Uh, but I sort of get to a point where I'm like I make the thing and then I'm like I could I could sort of you know kit bashes and, and I do because I do space wolf so I do sort of like I stick on sort of like thunder wolf heads and I do stuff like this you know sort of yeah. generic space wolfy type stuff but there's a guy uh, who runs the games workshop where now, now Warhammer in Manchester, and he does some of the most impressive kit bashes of stuff. Like he has got a kit bashed um, orc submarine, uh, a kit bashed um, uh, Titan orc Titan, but it, it's fucking. It's not even one of the silly looking ones. It's like it looks like it's like a tench. It's like this sort of. It's and it's so so impressive. And he does this as all kinds of. You can see all the bits he's done it with. And I'm just like, I wish I had the patience to do something like that. It's just it's mad. So I props that you know, <laughs> props to you because right. seriously, man, like you know, I, the amount of patience and time it must take to sort of kind of one come up with a thought and two to create that thing is just it, it blows my mind well sometimes it actually uh it starts with the object because i will do uh thought experiments occasionally where like my wife is throwing something away and i'm like no i'm gonna keep that and turn it into something using whatever i have available to me and the last one i did was actually with her uh with a shampoo bottle um i made a uh uh, actually made a, a, a distance filming model out of a shampoo bottle that I'm actually using for um, an independent movie that I just got hired as a props master for. So it's, I'm, it's what this is for. It's one of the spacesuits that I'm building for nice. it. It's one of the spacesuits. And it's actually just a little, 
it's this it's an old soviet high altitude flight helmet from the 60s and it's just i modified it and now i have to make three more i've got two halfway done and the rest of the spacesuits i still have to find all the neck rings those are the harder parts to find but um i i was a military collector for a while so identifying military equipment is easy uh easy for me so i've done a lot of stuff in my life so um but yeah I, and i i i picked up a lot of collecting from my dad because my dad was a very organized hoarder is the nicest way to say it so <laughs> you see tv programs about those guys american yeah pictures well not not like his uh his was all obscenely organized when he um he's un, he's unfortunately he's passed away now but um he had something in the neighborhood of seven thousand model kits in his garage when he passed away um, and they and they were model kits that went all the way back to the 1950s the very first model kits made by a company called penguin um, that got bought by Frog, that got bought by Airfix eventually. I mean, ancient model kits that you can't find anymore, but he had collected them for years. And he had something in the neighborhood of seven or 800 books in his library. And it was, it was, it was ridiculous, like how much stuff he'd collected. And, but it was so beautifully organized that you would never have thought, this guy's a hoarder. Yeah, no, yeah. he's a collector. There's a yeah. difference between hoarding yeah, and yeah. collecting, and I believe it's organization. But see, that, that's, that's my thing, right? So, I'm currently buying a house up the road and one of the prerequisites of any house buying for me is that i've got a room that i can have for all of my man stuff and for books and for like collectibles and i've got a fair few collectibles and stuff just sort of i need to show them off i hate it makes me feel sad inside that they're in boxes at the minute because i've got no room for them currently and stuff so like you i've know, got i feel yeah i I've, feel yeah I've, I've got a shed in the backyard that's quite large that's full of bins full of props so when i when i show off the props that i have in the house it's what i have room for in the house and the rest of it's in boxes would you never outside. do like well, a, a museum well, yeah. or something i like you know a, a museum there aren't really any museums around us that would that would be willing to do something like that at least not that i've thought of doing and but I'll, um we have and I, I know that they're they have them over there in europe too maker fairs yeah. Uh, that once they start up, I'll be able to bring out most of my collection and have, and I'm looking at building a new building here shortly in the back to move my shop out there. Cause right now I'm working out of 240 square feet, a tiny one car garage. And um, I'm looking to build a thousand square foot building in the back nice. to move into so I can, so that I can break all the parts out and finish Johnny five and finish Wally and uh, finish oh. my, uh, my two astromech droids that I have to work on. And oh, wow. so, you're, yeah, there's a lot of big projects I want to work on, but I don't have space for your place is going to be absolute Mecca. It's going to be like, <laughs> well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this TikTok thing goes somewhere so that I can actually just buy a piece of property and build a very large building. Yeah. 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 Um, so that I can then, put all the stuff in there because there's a lot of things i want to build my wife wants a full-size power loader from aliens <laughs> and i want to build it for her but we don't have the space right now so. i wish my girlfriend wanted a full power loader but she doesn't <laughs> well, I, did, I did actually I'm, I'm surprised i did actually find out where the last remaining full-size one is uh james cameron still owns it oh, um, all right it took yeah. it took forever to find that information but uh it took a while but i, I finally figured it out i won I've got a, one thing yeah, being to ask like I'm as Martin Third, I am a massive um, fan of the Alien and Aliens franchise. Now, one thing I love is like you know, a lot of their kit is based on real technology. Like 
the harness for the smart gun is basically from a cameraman's suit, but also that the motion tracker is basically a black and decker jigsaw. That the kit bag. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a power hammer actually is what oh, it is. Oh right, uh, sorry. The body of it, the body of no, it's fine. The uh, the body of it is a power hammer, and another part of it is a slide viewer. Um, there's camera parts on it. I have yeah. most of them in a box over there. I haven't built it yet. Um, but I'm actually working with a friend of mine who's part of Nation of Makers here in Indiana. We're actually going to try and put fully functional LiDAR in it uh, to make it work. I know some guys in the UK Colonial Marines that would die for that. <laughs> so it's, it's, not, it's, it's one of those things down the road that it's not going to be cheap by any means. Yeah. But we want to, I think it's like eight sensors that we want to put in it. So it will 360 detect motion. Yeah. It won't be oh, long range, but it, all it has to do is beep once and I'll be happy. You know, <laughs> but I'm trying it's to make a, full, a fully functional motion tracker from original parts. And no one's ever done that before. Yeah. So oh, there wow. are it, functional it, trackers, but not yeah. from original. It has a very specific sound though as well, doesn't it? You it mean does, you, yeah. you can listen to it. I mean, I remember playing the uh, Colonial Marines video game a few years ago. Terrible mm -hmm. game. But they no, nailed the sound. Horrible. It was Bad, horrible. Yeah. I still keep yeah. it though because they nailed the sound design perfectly. You listen yeah. to the sound of the of the um, pulse rifles, and mm -hmm. the motion. I can say yes, they actually really got that precise. Well, have you? I think I want to say have Have you been uh, to the Imperial War Museum there? Which one? The the one surviving hero prop of the M forty one is actually in their collection. Okay. So Which, that was the one, the one practical that was built that had both weapons that functioned, because oh, wow. it was a Thompson submachine gun and a, a Remington yeah. 870 shotgun. Uh, they only made one where both worked, and Bapti donated it to Bapti Armories is the, the people that made it for the film. They donated it to the Imperial War Museum, and then they deactivated it because of UK law. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I think museums are that way. Uh, they deactivated it completely, and then it's on display there occasionally. It comes oh, out for display. Right. Awesome. There's a guy that has collects all of the aliens' memorabilia and actual props, and he's managed to put together the Drake, like costume, including the armor, okay, the smart okay. gun, the um, camo, as well, and and garments as well. I believe, like or the kind oh, of wow, dress cool. marines, and oh, yeah, he's amazing. and yeah, he's basically he's spent. As fair to say, his entire life just kind of sourcing each different because, as you know, at the end of the film, all parts go away, and he's kind of been pulling it together from different yeah. uh, people, yeah, almost, places. I want to say almost. I actually just did a video today on the APC uh, that that thing sat outside and uh, rotted until it was scrapped because nobody oh, knew what to do with it. Um, it. But it was well, it was, it was an aircraft towing tug. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They had to pull like 44 tons of lead off of it because it weighed so much. And they filmed it in uh, a disused chemical company. And it was also the same chemical company that Batman 1989 was filmed in when Joker fell in the uh, chemical pit. Uh, that makes sense. So they, stayed, they filmed those in the same place. But if they had not taken the lead off of that, I believe it was a Hunslet ATT-77 aircraft towing tug. If they hadn't taken it from 72 tons to 28 tons, it would have fallen straight through the floor. Yeah. So they, they had to pull the weight out of it. But a lot of that stuff, particularly all the guns, all the, the live fire guns were almost all pulled out and sent back to the armory. Yeah. And like the, the, the smart weapon, the N56 smart weapon, 
was a it was an MG42 with a, on a camera mount, a custom made camera yeah. mount. And the guy that made that camera mount, you can actually still have him make you one today. That's dead on accurate to the one he made for that. And then they covered it in parts from a Kawasaki AR125 motorcycle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's where a lot of that, the parts come. If you look on the front of the gun, you can make out quite clearly the frame parts from a motorcycle are along the front of the weapon. And then uh, those all, I think almost every single one of those was dismantled. Two of them survived. And then the M41s, uh, they made three practicals and a couple of heroes, and very few of them survived production. They were destroyed during filming because they just bore them out. Yeah, and then the practice uh, disassembled except for one, and that was it. I heard like um, from some of the cast at the Aliens anniversary that um, Al Matthews, who played a pone, is like mm -hmm. is a former Marine, a decorated Marine, and he would be he basically as the sergeant he goes he kind of started leading the rest of the cast on how to be a proper Marine unit. I love and him. Once Love him. And chewed out um, the guy that played um, Hudson. Um, yeah, Bill Paxton. Yeah. Bill Paxton. Yeah. He chewed that bullet because he kept. He had very, as he called it, very poor finger discipline. He kept putting his finger yeah. on the trigger, and yeah. it inadvertently shot up the um, set one time because yeah. they were using like you know, genuine rounds. And basically, just like, you do not put your finger on the trigger. You put your finger behind the trigger. You do not touch it. And I tell you what. Like, Man, one of the coolest things I have ever seen at a convention was Apom, uh, Apom sitting there at a signing desk, flanked by Colonial Marines. You know, just looking badass. I was like, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't remember. I, I believe he was. Uh, I think he he did four years in the U.S. Army, but yeah. he was an NCO. And a non-commissioned officer, and and he was very strict about weapon discipline amongst the actors, which was yeah. pretty poor. Because they're actors; they're not military; they're not trained for that. So, and then, and actually, that was it. Was shortly after that that they did actually started doing the mini boot camp training for actors in films, uh, so that they would have proper weapon discipline. Because blanks can still kill and cause mm. harm, and still, it's the military trains weapon discipline. So that's something that they tried to convey with that. And that's where you had things like Warriors Incorporated with Captain Dale Dye, who came out and started doing boot camps on films uh, like Starship Troopers and The Pacific and Band of Brothers and all that to make actors look like they were actually in the military and to make then transfer those skills over so they were better actors and able to portray those characters. Yeah, I think a lot of that kind of stemmed from Aliens and some accidents that occurred yeah. on set. Go on. Uh, basically, one of the things that really stands out for me in the aliens was that they did the um, the mess hall scene last. They basically mm -hmm. put them through like you know, um, boot camp, then they uh, did the uh, all the filming, and then they did the uh, mess hall scene. And you can see that they've no you can see just basically just from the very naturalistic uh, body language and interaction that these people have been working together as yeah. a group of Marines or actors that have been enforced right. like, in close proximity to each other for many months. Pun? Oh, no, he's oh. gone again. I uh, might be back in three seconds. <laughs> What's that? Did he leave? Is uh, he gone now? He's back. He's back. So you were saying... Did I, did I, did I disappear again? You did disappear again. So. You're back, though. Good Lord. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> you yeah, still I, on dial-up in Indianapolis? 
Yeah. Well, it's America. We're lucky to have plumbing. So, uh, uh, no, it, it, I live in the middle of nowhere. So I, I, I'm in a very rural area. So internet, unfortunately, is spotty out here because in America, we're very, um, we're big fans of monopolies. Uh, so companies don't have to provide services kind of thing, but we're supposed to be getting, uh, uh, a much, uh, much better internet company coming in here shortly into our area. So we'll have, uh, we won't have to pay through the nose for nothing, which would be lovely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> One thing I've been wanting to ask is like, um, how did they build the, um, smart, um, the motion, not smart, the smart guns. Mm-hmm. The, the smart turrets system. How did they build that? Oh, the turret system? Yeah. Well, they, those were actually the same guns used in uh, the smart weapons. They were MG42s. Okay. Uh, and you can see the same drum magazine. And it's the, it's all they are is a 50 round magazine. So they burn through that super, super fast. But they just put them on a remote control turret. And it was just a servo that moved them back and forth. And they would fire as it went. So it wasn't tracking anything at all. It was all just. Yeah. Magic, and I don't know if any of those turrets survive anymore. I've Damn never it. seen one of the original ones, um, but I, I imagine there's parts of them around. But they were the same guns that were used for the M56 smart weapons, and I think they actually only had two live fire MG42s, so they were constantly swapping them back and forth for different films. And actually, the young, the lady who played Vasquez, yeah, 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 she had to be really, really careful during scenes where she had the practical, the live fire gun. Because it's quite heavy. An MG42 fully loaded, covered in motorcycle parts is very, very heavy. And that uh, uh, camera arm that they were carrying, the, the steady cam arm, if they let go of the gun, it would fly out in front of them under yeah. spring tension. And she let go of the weapon one day, and all of that weight went like two and a half feet out in front Ooh. of her. So she was face plant immediately. Because um, she's not very tall. She's actually quite yeah. short. So it took her down, and it nearly took down the actor who played Drake once, because he let go in, uh, mistakenly, and it almost took him off of his feet. So that they there were a lot of a lot of weird things going on in that movie. Jeez. But I do like that their armor was actually metal. Every single one of them, their armor was metal. All right, okay. and, also, yeah. and also the, each actor customized it themselves. It did, yeah. They gave him a table full of stuff, and said, "Make it look like it's your own." And and I also love the story of the camouflage pattern on the armor. Terry English, master armorer, yeah. uh, made all that stuff. And he couldn't remember what colors they had told him to use for the camouflage and was actually supposed to really closely match the fatigues. So, mm. like, basically on the night, he painted it. And he said, you know what? This will do. This will be fine. <laughs> They'll love it. Maybe not. Who cares? I'm Terry English. They'll just send it back. Um, and, if, I don't know if you can see the, the image behind me. That was given to me by Terry English. Oh, nice. It's the armor design from Aliens. Oh, that's cool. That was presented to him by James Cameron. And um, Terry English signed it to me. So it's like, yes. <laughs> nice. That's a, that's a good piece to have. Yeah. Like, when it when it arrived on set, uh, James Cameron looked at it and he was like, I love the mismatch. Let's keep it. Because otherwise it was going to be a completely different camouflage pattern. Yeah, yeah. Just because oh, Terry was I, like, oh, I can't be bothered to remember. <laughs> Tell of it. Send it. Do you know what blows I, my... I, I... Sorry, Pete. Uh, just w one quick thing there before you, you jump in, John Joe. The uh, Vasquez, the uh, the actress who plays Vasquez, she's the mother of John Connor in Terminator Two. Yes, and it didn't. Yes, you know, yes. I never. I, it's like I was like, but a, a year 
younger before I realized that when something popped up and I was like, holy shit, that's the same actress. Yeah. Didn't know. <laughs> Didn't know. Sorry, John Joe, yeah. away. What do you think about that? Thinking, would the T-1000 really survive? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> um, what I was going to say is, is um, I know some people, when they get into their craft, they see their craft first before they see anything else. When you're watching a film or when you're watching a TV show, do you look at the props and do you just go, I can make that? And then you I, go, shit, I'm supposed to be watching this. <laughs> I, I knew right where you were going almost immediately with that question. No, I cannot uh, I cannot watch a movie without looking at props. Uh, and it infuriates my wife to no end because um, I do my level best through the first watch of a movie to just watch the movie. But I can't help but, what's that? What's that made from? <laughs> that looks familiar, you know? Um the second watch through of a movie, my wife has accepted that it will get paused a hundred times <laughs> while I try and identify stuff. And oftentimes the second watch through on a movie, my wife will leave the room. <laughs> She's just I, like, I find... do, your, do your thing. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to go play Minecraft or something. Like that. <laughs> I, I find when I watch the old Doctor Who, like going back to um, William mm -hmm. Hartnell, Patrick Troughton, uh, you can see just how, obviously, how low budget is everything that they pick up. Is literally no part went spare. They probably reused each part about ten or twelve times, oh, and it's just so fun. It's so fun when you watch it, especially um, the first Dalek story. One of my favourite things of that is the corridors, because you can even see it's literally they've just painted a corridor and then they've just put it on a different wall each time that they're running along, and yep. it's just it's just the same canvas each time. And even one, I remember one shot. They literally the canvas is just on the edge of the screen and you can mm. see behind it it's just nothing and it's just right it was one and I, I think it's just so funny but it was like i couldn't help but not like look at that i had to watch that and it was like i was like hang on um you've got you've got susan basically being chased by a dalek on the left hand side but the right hand side you can see the prop guy you can see the yeah, camera guy see steve from lighting <laughs> it's crazy. but it was it's one of the things especially watching old doctor who i find that's what i do even um one of the Tom Baker ones, I remember there's an alien where literally they just got bubble wrap and they put green paint over it. Oh, went, I yeah. remember that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it like, I watch it, it's like, how can anyone see this as scary? How can anyone even <laughs> I, think this was like the whole, you know, hide behind the sofa? I, I love the idea that the BBC basically just like dug around in their pockets and they were like, here's your budget, Doctor Who, enjoy. <laughs> that was how they made those shows. But and, and you can see that, that, and that's a good example of prop recycling and reusal is Doctor Who and different shows from that era. They were all pulling from the same prop departments that the BBC had. Because the Monty Python is no different. The, the famous albatross scene from Monty Python, where they're in a theater and he's just albatross. calling out albatross, albatross, get it on a stick, John Cleese is. That skit came about because John Cleese was in the property room of the BBC and found a giant stuffed albatross. Yeah, uh, he he got the albatross out of storage and just and made a whole sketch based around it, and that was it. Uh, that albatross had been reused in numerous different shows. It's just background stuff, but John Cleese turned it into something hilarious. And and then you see a lot of those same props from Doctor Who and Monty Python, whatever being reused by Pinewood and Elstree Studios later on in Star Wars. Because in some of the earliest seasons of Doctor Who, 
The same spacesuits were then later used by a character in the cantina, and then later that same spacesuit was worn by Bosk. Ah, no and way. That, and, yeah, and that spacesuit is actually a high altitude, it's an RAF high altitude pressure suit that is one of the rarest pieces of military equipment in the world because they were only made for a short period of time and then they were surplused. And almost all of them were bought by film studios. And the helmet from that is also the rescue helmet from Alien. That is, okay. that's, that's behind the pilot seats that you only yeah. see for a few seconds, like the opening scene where the information goes across the visor. That's yeah. that same space, that's that same helmet that comes from that flight suit. So you see all this crossover of stuff when you start to like educate like yourself on what these parts are, where they came from. And it's much like, like you said, with hallways, even in Alien, <laughs> they were using the same hallways as just shifted yeah. or moved in one way and painted a different color. And it's the same with, if you've seen Outlander, they did the same thing yeah. in Outlander. They would use the same sets, but then change the angle at which they were sitting mm. and make it look like a different set, which I love that. Isn't, uh, yeah. isn't the Death Star, the corridors like Leeds University or something like that? It's like one of the, they used the, the corridors from like Leeds University or is it Sheffield University? Not, I don't just, remember. Definitely Sheffield. I don't remember. I, I, I've heard this before and I haven't fully researched it, so I won't say one way or the other. But I have heard that it was it was from a university or from an art school yeah. specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I've not researched it, so I can't say 100 percent. Yeah. I heard that the armor from uh, Starship Troopers was <laughs> used was later used in. Um, would you like Firefly. the full Firefly. list? Would you like the full list of everything that it's been in? Yes. It's been in a few hours. <laughs> yes. It's been in a lot. So it started out uh, in Starship Troopers, and it was designed and built by Max Cervantes out in California. Yeah. Uh, it was then used in Power Rangers. It was then used in Firefly and Serenity. It was then used in Planet of the Apes in 2001. It was then used in um, Imposter in 2001 again. And then it's been seen in some background shots and a couple of different documentaries. And by this time, it's all so worn out, it can't be used anymore. Yeah, I can imagine. But they, they made 2,000 helmets, 2,000 sets of armor, and about oh, 1,100. There it is. Oh, wow. There it is. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, this is actually taken from one of the original uh, production molds. It's all fiberglass. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, cool. But I have a mold that I make these out of resin. And... Uh, I'll be I'll be selling those here before too long, oh, but um, this is uh, yeah this is and you can tell how bad these things were and how fast they made these. But um, I actually have been speaking with a guy in Florida who owns most of the live fire versions of these from production. Whoa. So um, and it's actually kind of it's a fun story about these rifles. So the way that these weapons are deactivated differs based on country. Uh, in the EU, the barrel is considered the weapon, so the barrel gets deactivated. Here in the United States, it's the receiver, the part that actually the magazine goes in and cycles the ammunition through. So these things were deactivated when they were sent over to Britain for sale. They were deactivated under EU law, and the barrels were plugged. Well, then they changed hands a bunch of times and then got resold back into the United States with fully operational receivers, which means that someone in Britain sent some guy a live machine gun <laughs> in the mail Holy shit. here in the States. And, and well, nobody knew it because everybody looks at these and they go, oh, it's just a prop. You know, it's a prop. Who cares? 
but there's some folks out there with live fully automatic weapons and they don't know it. Uh, and there's actually some in the EU still that were never fully deactivated. And actually, uh, one of the guys that I've spoken to, he bought one through the mail when he was 15 years old, because you can order these through the mail at one point. And when they sent it to him, it was very heavy. And he was very confused as to why it was heavy, because it was supposed to be rubber. And he put his hand on it and squeezed the trigger, and they didn't brass check it when they sent it to him, which means check for rounds. And it was full of blanks, and it was fully automatic. Oh. And in his basement, in his basement... <laughs> He burned off five rounds of full automatic. Chase. And they immediately contacted the authorities. Like, oh, goodness, we're not supposed to have this. And he got his money back and went back to the studio. But, yeah, it was uh, it was quite exciting, the lack of weapons control that took place on that movie. I want to hear the conversation that lad had with his mum and dad. Right? Mum, dad, you're not going to believe this. Right. That is definitely not. It's lucky it wasn't somebody from Northern Ireland who had that. (laughs) Is it it true what I heard? Um, Because there was the the, the incident in The Crow, which is obviously one of the biggest tragedies in terms of film props. Um, Is it true that there was a massive change in the law, obviously, after after that that scene? Because obviously it wasn't just about the the, the weapon itself being loaded. But it was about the responsibility of who basically was in the fault because obviously the actor who fired the gun obviously didn't realize that the gun was jammed and that the blank was going to fire off. And that, you know, it was, there, there was a lot of yeah. there was a lot of procedural failures that led to yeah. Brandon Lee being killed. Um, initially, they were only supposed to film uh, some knife fighting scenes, and they sent the safety guy home that dealt with firearms. But then somebody said, hey, let's get out the firearms we used earlier. And they used, so there's two, I did a video on this, but they did, they have two types of bullets essentially in Hollywood. They have dummy cartridges and blanks. Dummies look like live rounds and it's just a bullet in a case with no primer, no powder. So nothing can happen to it. You squeeze the trigger, nothing happens. Well, apparently on the Crow, they were making their own dummy rounds from live ammunition. So they were pulling the bullet, pouring out the powder, but leaving the primer. And in, oh, and in the gun world, that's called a squib. You pull the trigger on a squib, that primer has enough force to push the bullet into the barrel. And that's what happened. And then later, they used blanks, and they essentially used a live cartridge at that stage because you had the bullet in the barrel with a blank, which is a full powder charge, it fired the bullet out and it hit Brandon in the stomach and it ultimately killed him. Uh, but the safety guy had been sent home. They were not supposed to be using firearms. And after that, all the procedures about the use of firearms on set changed. They can only be, essentially, they can only be um, maintained by one person or a small group of people. They're the only ones allowed access to them. I don't know the full rules because I'm not an armorer. But I know that a lot of the procedures changed about the use of them. And there are a lot of restrictions on the use of of blank firing guns in film anyway, which is why the use of them in smaller productions tends to be less and less now because of the the heavy restrictions on them. They're only actually allowed, if I'm not mistaken, in California, they're only allowed to actually shoot so many blank rounds a day on one production. So, And then you, you know how they get the sparks on the wall with a paintball yeah, gun. Yeah. 
Yeah, filled this, uh, with those special paintballs. They're only allowed to shoot so many of those a day, too. So a lot of productions have gone over to just using CG to fill in the ejecting cases and the ejecting or and the, the muzzle flash and stuff like that. Because one, it's safer. Um, you don't have to worry about any of the stuff that happened with Brandon. And you don't have to worry about any of the safety precautions that come with having live weapons on stage. Because even if they're just firing blanks, they're still a live weapon. So, and they have to be treated the same way too. So I know the, the safety procedures have changed dramatically. I can't speak to the laws because I don't live in California, but I'm sure there are quite a few. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned CGI. What's your opinion on CGI? I mean, I've been speaking to um, Dave Elsie, the mm -hmm. special effects guy from Farscape. And right. watching that, you know, the physical effects still stand up 20 years later. Yeah. But some of the CGI, you're thinking, Oh, that's not as good as it should have been. I I don't think that CGI is a hundred percent there to replace practical effects. Yeah, I believe that practical effects still look real because they are, and yeah. that CGI is the best use of CGI is to enhance practical effects. Yeah. Um, the biggest example I will always give of that because I've had this conversation numerous times is 2011's The Thing. Um, okay. Which was uh, the it was essentially a prequel to 1982's thing, John Carpenter's masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, they they made all of these absolutely gorgeous practical effects, and what little footage of them survives, you look at it and you, as someone who is a fan of special effects, you just drool at them because they're just gorgeous, and they were just going to enhance with CGI, and that was it. Well, somebody decided way above the director's head. Let's CGI over everything and just pure CGI. And it, in, in effect, it ruined the look of the movie. And it makes me sad because the story was there. The acting was there. The only thing that killed it was the special effects. And, and if they'd left it alone, it would have been a wonderful addition to the thing mythos. But unfortunately, it's, it's other like, people got involved and ruined it. It's like, it's like The Hobbit. I'm a massive Lord of the Rings fan, like huge Lord of the Rings fan. Way um, too much CGI. Yeah, and The Hobbit just it it, it went from the Weta Workshop um, bigotures, um, everything was crafted, um, you know, made, and and you could tell that it was tangible. It felt sort of kind of real, and then they went to just pure, even to like the Uryx and um, goblins and things like that, just all CGI over the top. Yeah, and yeah, it was, it was just like you know, it wasn't. They didn't one. They didn't need to stretch it out to three films. But two, no. they just went overboard. That was a one movie book. Yeah, that was definitely a one movie book. Like I didn't mind some of the exposition they had in it, you know, you know, some of the other parts, but it's just like I watched it and you know, I remember going like me and my family was a whole thing. We go and see it and just coming out and me and my dad just kinda of going Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure if I can I kinda of wanna like it because it's Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but I just don't know if I can because it's just like they've CGI'd the fuck out of it and I'm just not buying into that. And it's just like, I can understand like in the originals, you know, where they have the battle scenes in a car park and they've got sort of, you know, people dressed, they've got sort of local Maoris and stuff dressed up as sort of like, you know, Uruks and stuff and Urukai, sorry. And, um, you know, they've got, they're raining on them and then they sort of kind of, they double it up with CGI so they make it more so it looks like there's more of them. But then... They're just literally making these battle scenes out of pure CGI, and it's just like, 
why though your whole the whole the whole thing especially for peter jackson you'd think you know your your whole I, life I is being peter made jackson saw a paycheck yeah. more than anything yeah. and he was also under enormous pressure to shit to churn it out yeah and i think and he, even he has stated that he regrets how those films came out so i don't yeah. blame him a hundred percent yeah i think if you look at the yeah when you look at the amount that was put into them films um the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, the combined budget was something like about two hundred and seventy to three hundred million dollars. That mm. was basically what they gave for each Hobbit film. Right. And so, literally, whereas when you're thinking that you know three hundred million was spread across three films, they're obviously being a bit more practical. They're thinking of ways to stretch that money, basically mm. to do what they can to you know, all right, we we can't afford CGI, so we might have to. Like like Matt said, you know, hire um, loads of extras, just paint them up, and just go. Yep, yeah, we'll we'll copy them in post production or something. But right. to be given to be given that three hundred million dollars per movie, that's just basically saying, well, we can do whatever we want with it. And it goes from having that thought process of thinking, right, how can we make this film with what we've got? Basically, it's like we can make the film with whatever and. Yeah, I I think mm. The Hobbit just really um, it, it 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 failed for me because it just it didn't have that that sense of that it didn't have that grounded sense as what The Lord of the Rings had, especially when you look at the Return of the King. Now it still holds up so well. It, all three of the does, Lord yeah. of the Rings films, and just the um, and even like you know the final battle in the Two Towers. That is one of my favourite film scenes of all time, and I think it's just. It's just so beautifully shot. It's so grounded. There's very little CGI for Al. And it's just, it just looks amazing. And then when you look at a battle in The Hobbit, you think 10 years down the line, CGI has progressed so far. It looks awful. It looks very jarring. And you just can't, you just can't focus on it. You can't take it in because it just doesn't look believable. It just doesn't look right. And, I, I, and I've not watched The Hobbit films since I've seen them in the cinema because yeah, I just me either. I just can't bring myself to go back to yeah. them. But I, I think I've watched them once since. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, it just yeah, it wasn't. It just wasn't the same. I know it's just I didn't hate them, but I was just I was very dumbfounded when I came out of it and just kind of yeah. going, uh, I don't want to. Uh, yeah, they weren't necessarily bad, but it was just it was just that they overstretched the material and they made it look to it's basically what happened like with the prequels for star wars they literally just went right we've got the money now we're just going to make it over the top and flashy we're going to throw in everything we can in, and it was just like the substance just wasn't there in star wars's defense though um they sort of were gr- quite groundbreaking in the use of their cgi because a lot of their cgi um was the okay um what's the 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 standard i think going forward after that and stuff so they were just he was trying out new technique it wasn't like it wasn't very well known so back you know as much as the the old sort of the prequel films get a lot of stick and stuff they were groundbreaking in a lot of ways and stuff so they were yeah you can then Um, see in the sequel trilogy they did then bring back more of a practical element yeah well yeah really good yeah, they tried to recapture that aesthetic of the original trilogies a lot harder than than was in the the prequels. But um, as far as the Hobbit goes, I have no problems with the first movie. I really don't. I mean, there's some little issues that you can't get past, like the Goblin King is annoying. But <laughs> um, I don't like. I love that Stephen Fry voiced him, but I I, I 
like I can't get past the look of it because no, it's the, just go the goblin CG. There's, what's dude, the goblin king? The Goblin King was, um, it's not, I don't think it's Stephen Fry, it's um, Diomedna, the guy, the guy who plays Diomedna, oh, I'm going to have to Google this now, because I'm not thinking it's... it's what do you do now? Now my question is... Uh, it's the guy, you know, Di have you, there's a, basically a drag act, an Australian drag act, uh, he, for, you know, was quite prominent in the UK, called Diomedna, um, and uh, the voice, the guy who did Diomedna, I'm pretty sure did the Goblin King, I could be completely wrong, uh, Goblin King... I've just Googled Goblin King. It's come up with David Bowie, so it's definitely not the right one. Um, uh, well, that's that's from uh, Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what I get for not typing the whole thing. Yeah, um, you get Barry Humphreys. Barry, yeah, Barry Humphreys. Barry Humphreys, yeah, Humphreys yeah. there he is. Barry there you go. You're, every day's a school day. Yeah, I, see, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I'm the idiot here. I thought it was Stephen Fry. Yeah. But as it turns out, Barry Humphreys. Yeah. I've um, learned a thing today. Yeah, One thing I liked about the Hobbit films was that um, I was speaking to Graham, Graham McTavish, who played Dwalin, mm -hmm. and he's a massive fan of Emily Bronte. And, like, obviously, the big thing with Dwalin, he's got axes. So Graham was actually like, no, we should name these axes. These axes should have a name. And Emily Bronte had two dogs called Grasper and, and Biter. And the next day he came on set and um, said, like, oh, here's your axes as the Dwalin. And they're actually written on the, the, uh, the names Grasper and Biter onto his ass. <laughs> and it's like, just like, you never see that on screen at any point in the film. But there's little yep. touches I found. There's a lot of details that, that you don't see at all on yeah. screen that are there. And it's oftentimes it's added either by the prop makers or it's added by uh, the art directors. They want it in there and it's or it's for the actors or something like that. And it's just these little details that you don't find out about until after the movie. Much like R2-D2 being in almost every Star Trek film uh, reboot. And also um, uh, in 2001 or not 2001, but... Um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, R2-D2's in that. Uh, he's in he's in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, oh, yeah. There, there's, yeah, it, it's just Easter eggs, largely just yeah. for the people making the movie. Like, they know these things are there. Yeah, but, I mean, some of that, uh, one thing that always, always reminds me is in Predator 2. Um, so basically, they, they put that alien skull in, in, like, in the ship at the end. Yeah. And that can explode into a massive Alien versus Predator franchise. And it's it just put in there as a random, hey, let's like get a, an Alien trophy. Yeah, it was a, it was an Easter egg or something like it. it was somebody was like, let's do this for the fans because it'd be funny. And also Bill Paxton was in Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> so let's do this. It'll be hilarious. And then they were like, oh, crap, we didn't capitalize on this. We should have been prepared. Much like Disney with Baby Yoda. Disney was not prepared for the popularity of Baby Yoda. They yeah. had no merchandise designed. <laughs> and everybody jumped on it on Etsy and different websites where they were making their own Grogu, as we now know him. And Disney was not prepared. They had nothing lined up. They made this absolutely adorable thing. And they're like, no, nah, nothing's going to happen with that. That's that's them not thinking it through. <laughs> <laughs> And it's the most popular, most popular Star Wars character in a long time. Yeah, it's, that's true. It's, it's, it's a tiny, tiny little Grogu. And I don't think he's going to be I, in the next series. I think he's just going to. Be, I don't think he's going to be in the next yeah. series either. So, well, I, I think his 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 arc with Mando with Mando is done for yeah. right now. Yeah, and I think and, that's good because they, they don't want to overdo yeah. it, do they? They don't want to overdo well, it. Well, because now now it's 
to take back Mandalore at this stage. Yeah. Because if he, I, there's three items, and you might be able to help me with the lore here, and I can't remember 100%, but it's um, the dark saber, the spear, and I think it's a helmet. That if he finds that helmet, then he's the like the unrivaled king of Mandalore. All right, okay. Like, oh. He has two of them already. So, because that spear is thought to be the spear of Mandalore or something like that. I can't remember all the details anymore. It's been a long time. But if he, if he gets that third item, then he's the undisputed heavyweight king of Mandalore. You know? I hope that doesn't happen. Because what I like about uh, the Mandalorian is that it's, it feels like just all the side quests. There's the main quest happening over here, which he occasionally intersects with. But he's over here doing his thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't want him to become... A, a big character. No. I want to stay in you, you want those kind of smaller personal stories. Like I hope that he just takes the dark saber and like chucks it in a bin, and then like there you go, you beat me. Yeah. Let's play chess. There you beat me. Take it. I'm I'm going <laughs> off. Well, on. That's one thing he says. Like the yep, you won. There's the dark saber. Yeah, he it. does not want it. No, he doesn't. <laughs> and and I I like that about him. And I want them to. They won't. I feel like they won't. I feel like they'll try and make it into a bigger. Luke Skywalker-esque hero story, mm. and I'd rather they um, don't. We'll see where they go with it. Yeah, saying about um, you know, like hidden little details in films. You say about like Predator Two had mm -hmm. the alien skull. Um, Marvel, the MCU is famous, obviously, for little Easter eggs and for little props. One of my favourites was in the first four movie when they're running through um, Asgard. There is uh, the, the the trophy room. And one yeah. of the items that are there is the Infinity Gauntlet. And mm -hmm. for years, you had people just going like, hang on, how's there Infinity Gauntlet when the Infinity Gauntlet hasn't actually been created yet and the stones are in all different places? And then for Ragnarok, they literally just go, oh, what's it? Oh, nice fake. And then it just chucks it. It's like, <laughs> yeah. that's brilliant. That's yeah. brilliant. That's like one of my favorite bits because it's just like, oh, hang on. So six years of people's ideas, every possible conviction, it's like, nice fake. Never mind. Why? Why was it there in the first place? That's the other thing. <laughs> just, just as Easter egg for fans. I think right now my favorite, my my very favorite theory that goes on right now, um, involves um, Samuel L. Jackson, his character that he plays. I'm terrible with names. So Windu. Um, Nick no, no. Fury. Oh, Nick, Nick Fury. Fury. Right, Marvel. Right. Yeah, so. There's that there's the there's the race of shapeshifters that we get introduced to in oh, Captain Marvel. The scrolls. The scrolls. Yes, yes, yes. So yeah. in that in that movie, there's a scene where, of course, this is younger um, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, and he he can't eat something because it's bread cut diagonally. He can't eat it. And people started going back in other movies that took place later on in the timeline, and he's deliberately shown eating sandwiches with diagonally cut bread and yeah, the theory yeah. is is that he's been a scroll the whole time <laughs> yeah, that was it because that's the thing no one knows how long he's actually been up in space because in the yeah. uh post credit scene for spider-man far from home you find out yeah. that he's on a scroll spaceship and it was like hang on so yeah how long has talos actually been impersonating nick fury has it been a yeah. few months has it been years has it been since or, do they, or do they switch back and forth as needed? Are they working <laughs> together, like, so that Nick Fury can be in two places at once? <laughs> <laughs> like Jeff been going on, yeah. Yeah, I'll be yeah, back for I the summer. You can cover the winter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. What? What's? Um, 
what is your pride and joy? What's your pride and joy piece that you have? Uh, the Book of the Dead. Yeah. Um, I was in the right place and the right time to get one of the last pulls from the uh, original production-made molds from from the film. Oh wow! And I uh, it's one. I think only eight castings came out of those molds, and I managed to be in the right place to get a set of them, along with a casting of the key uh, from the production mold. And I spent a long time researching the shades of gold and black that went on that thing, the different paint codes, the whole Pantone of it, and made it as accurate as I could. And it's, I think it's, it's one of less than a dozen in the world uh, that of those, those particular runs of that. Um, so I, that's my pride and joy uh, piece in, in my collection is because I love it. I love how quickly conversations start over it. Uh, as soon as somebody walks in and sees it, they go, oh, is that the Book of the Dead? I don't care how young they are, how old they are. They look at it and go, oh, that's the Book of the Dead. And then the conversation starts rolling. I took it to a Maker Fair before COVID and had it setting on a table. And there was beautiful work all over the place, beautiful objects, everything. And I was there supporting a maker space here in, in Indiana. And just people walked past everything to go look at the Book of the Dead. And I, I love I love how universal that thing is for people, even though it's supposed to be pure evil. <laughs> <laughs> like their curiosity is immediate. Like, that's the Book of the Dead. Tell me more. And I love that that aspect of it, how quickly it can start a conversation. I, I don't have um, I don't have any sort of uh, any uh, I've got replicas like I've got I've got the pulse rifle and stuff upstairs from Sideshow Collectibles and stuff like that. I've got nothing that has been sort of um, you know, come from actual films or anything. But my one of my most, the most beautiful thing I've got in my collection is a Hoth diorama that was created, um, and it's basically uh, like three arats. Uh, it's about I don't know. It's about one foot by two, one by two two foot by one foot, sort of in a glass or a perspex box, and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, but it's signed by Brian Johnson. Um, the guy who did the uh, the effects for um, Empire Strikes oh, Back. Wow. Um, and <laughs> I remember, right, I got this thing. So I won it. It was like a charity thing. And um, this was a charity night. This had, I was sitting beside it, this charity do. Uh, Brian Muir, who did um, uh, Darth Vader's helmet. Um, yep, I know. Uh, <laughs> and at my table was also, uh, and I can't forget his name, but um, he, uh, was, Admiral Piet was there. And, uh, and and behind me, literally the seat behind me was um, was um, uh, was Darth Vader, uh, Price. And um, I was just like, oh my God, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. There's all these Star Wars <laughs> legends just sort of kind of, you know, David Price is there. Everybody, you know, I got a photograph with him. I was just like, this is the, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. And then I got this, this diorama, which I won, cost me 300 quid worth every penny. And then the guy, this guy comes up to me and I'm sitting there just buzzing about this, not thinking about who's around me and what's going on. And the guy goes, would you like me to sign that for you? And I just turned to him and went, why did you make it? And he went, no, I did all the special effects for, for Empire Strikes Back. And I went, holy shit. So I've yep. got it and it's signed by him. And I'm just like, it's, it's like my pride and joy. Love it. It's just a beautiful thing. I, um, I, I, I've met a few actors uh, in my time um, at cons and stuff like that, you know, when they do their, their signings and stuff. But I was never, ever like nervous to meet anybody. 
just because like that's their job that's what they do it's cool that there's someone that i know through this but i i went to this thing called nomcon down in chattanooga tennessee and it was a it's nation of makers convention and i was walking down one of the hallways and i rounded a corner and i was face to face with adam savage and i'd I'd, i'd never met him before but i found that like special effects people and makers and stuff like that i'm more nervous to meet them than i would be any actor like, cause that's what my whole life has been focused around is that. So meeting those guys is amazing to me. So, and, and, and I had a really good conversation with Adam Savage about props and our mutual love of the fifth element and stuff. And he's, he's as nice in person as he is in, uh, on TV. So, which was, which was reassuring cause they say, don't meet your heroes. But, um, but I met him and he was, he was, he was pretty awesome. So, uh, but yeah, that's, that's my one cool celebrity story is that I met Adam Savage. <laughs> we um uh sorry two things you talk about chattanooga every time you say sort of kind of talk about these southern states i sort of kind of get because i'm a massive military i did a military history degree so i'm just saying chattanooga okay. battle of chattanooga american civil war That's and stuff chattanooga, yeah. yeah yeah um but like talking about like famous people we went me and my brother and a couple of friends went to san diego comic-con in 2016 mind-blowing stuff man that place is absolutely insane and the whole city's yeah. just taken over but there were so many like just random sort of like celebrities just wandering around like at one point like uh justin timberlake just walked in front of us and uh and, <laughs> and uh dj uh sorry dj quails uh who's a DJ he's Qualls. Qualls, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was just sitting in this place called um, Henry's Pub, and he was just, you know, there most nights, and we were there. Just being just, DJ Qualls the whole time, probably. Yeah, just being yeah. DJ Qualls. And then, yeah. like, um, we were, me and my brother were, like, uh, we were in, I can't remember, one of the hotels, near one of the hotels, and we were, like, taking photographs and stuff for the website, and we're, like, um, uh, should we take a photograph of this cosplayer? No, what about the... What about the um the Gandalf over there? I was like, oh man, nah, that that Gandalf, that Gandalf is fuck. That's that shit. That's not a very good cosplay. We'll not take a photograph of that. And so we just like, and he was just standing there talking to people, and like we you know take him. So we just sort of kind of walked off and didn't take a photograph of him, only to find out literally about sort of twenty minutes later, as as they comes on stage, the Gandalf costume comes on stage in on in Hall H, and it's um oh fuck, the guy who played the Flash in justice league um oh yeah okay yes Ezra miller it was ezra miller it was ezra miller Miller. he was just standing there and we were just like (laughs) i was just like dude i said to my brother it's like we literally could have taken photographs with that guy and didn't because his costume was shit (laughs) i love all the stories of sir ian mckellen and all of the times that he uses his you shall not pass line over and over and over again (laughs) for different things (laughs) Um, I guess it, I want to say it was in San Diego. They were trying to get across, they were trying to go across a crosswalk with a whole (laughs) bunch of people and somebody dressed as Gandalf. And as the story goes, Sir Ian McKellen just walked up, said, may I borrow this please? And takes the staff from him because traffic wouldn't stop. And he just walked out and just started yelling, you shall not pass. <laughs> and everybody stopped and everybody's like, Who this, who's this crazy old guy? And, <laughs> and a few people realized that, oh shit, that's Ian McAllen. I've got to say, there is one from, because um, obviously I've never been, but I've always watched the San Diego panels when they've been on. One of my favorite ones was Brian Cranston because he was going around the convention. In his real skin mask? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. he actually had a Heisenberg mask on. And no one knew it was him. He literally he's just come on the stage, 
taking the mask off. And, like, and it always wow. and it always circles back to Brian Cranston, doesn't it? You did it to yourself, Mike. You did it to yourself. I did, I did do it to myself. I know. <laughs> I know, and I'm okay with this. No one the comic con that would never have come up. Right? No. Oh, I believe you. <laughs> oh wow. Oh man. Well, well, folks. Um, it, it's been fun, but uh, I'm I'm being told that it's almost dinner time. Yeah, so I, we'll, we'll leave it there anyway. Um, right. Okay, so it's getting late for you guys too. So. Yeah, uh, it's been a pleasure, Mike. I really uh, yeah. appreciate the time you've given us, and um, it's been super interesting. Could easily sit and talk to you for another couple of hours now. With you know, with so many stories uh, we could. Well, we need to get you back on you, again. I'm gonna do a plug here real quick. If you're okay with yes, that. yes, far Please away. Do. Um, if you want to f- hear more stories about props, uh, you can get on iTunes or Anchor or any place that you get podcastings at and check out the Prop History Podcast. That's me and my friend Greg Nowling uh, talking about a specific movie for 45 minutes to an hour and all the props and stuff behind it. Um, and also, obviously, TikTok at Props to History. And now, actually, all of my social media is being converted over to Props to History. So uh, on any social media, you can find me uh, on Props to History. And if you have questions, just add it to the growing list of, I think I'm at 950 questions in my Q&A on TikTok. Right so, <laughs> wow, I've um, got 17. I got paid per question, man. <laughs> I've got 17, <laughs> and they're all, what age is he? <laughs> I know, is, is really he a new <laughs> It's all the same. Your, dog, your dog's name is Boromir, right? Boromir, yeah, Boromir. Yeah. That's amazing. I love yeah. it. I love it. <laughs> right. Anyway, so we'll leave it there. Again, Mike, really appreciate the time. Really love it. Um, yeah, anytime. There was a question on YouTube. I'll say this question now just before you go, but um, Mike is a kind, and this is from uh, Nan Braun. I says, Mike is a kind. Oh, Nan, I love Nan. Nan's the best. Yeah, sorry, yeah, I was going to get to this, but I forgot about Nan you. Nan is a dear friend of mine, so... Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Nan, I forgot to get to you. Mike, Mike's got to have his dinner, so we're, we're not going to be able to do it. But it says, Mike is a kind and giving human. Other humans ask him about magic wheelchair, uh, but his uh, fastidious, I love that word, and aggressive about details on props and cosplay. And that gives him an am- amazing results. Well, that's some glowing reviews right there. Well, if mm. any... Now, speaking of that, because... Mm. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Nan. Nan, you're one of my favorite people in the world. Um, Nan's opened a lot of doors for me and helped me in a lot of ways, and she's really just one of the best people on the planet. But um, a charity that I work with pretty regularly is magicwheelchair.org, magicwheelchair.org. Uh, they build um, costumes for children in wheelchairs, yeah. and I first got involved with them with NomCon. And um, if you want to donate to them, please do. Um, they build costumes for kids all over the world. And uh, they're actually based out of Seattle. But um, I, because of COVID, I haven't had a chance to do any builds with them. But it was one of the most rewarding things I ever did. And if you find a Magic Wheelchair build in your area and want to get involved with it, go through magicwheelchair.org. And you can get involved with those builds to help these kids uh, at cons or Halloween or wherever. It is really one of the best things you can do with, with your skills as a maker. And everyone's a maker, no matter what you think. Oh, awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for uh, for listening. Uh, thanks, Nan. Apologies for not getting to your, your comment earlier until earlier. Uh, but um, thanks a lot. Uh, for tonight, I've been Matt Geary. With me has been John Joe Cosgrove. Smoke me a kipper. I'll be back for breakfast. Uh, Peter Ray Allison. Take care, everyone. <laughs> and look out for each other. And as always, Michael Corey. Thank you very much. Cheers.